0: If you were to go onto your chosen search engine of choice, Google or DuckDuckGo or whatever one you may choose, and type in the phrase misconceptions people believe, you're going to come up with a lot of fascinating misconceptions. And there's so many out there. For example, the image of a fat, laughing, big bellied Buddha isn't actually true. The reality is, he was this mystic, ascetic who prayed under a lotus tree. Eating hardly anything because his goal was to achieve achieve enlightenment. So he's not this big, smiling, fat, big tummy Buddha like we think he is. Or what about this one? People believe the fortune cookie has come from China, but that just isn't true. And so some of you are like, well, I guess I can't go to the Chinese food because I love the fortune cookie. It actually came from Japan and was introduced to the United States. How about this one? Napoleon wasn't actually short. And you're like, whoa, 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 hold on. You know, the the Napoleon complex, all these kind of things that are out there. No, he wasn't actually short. When you and I say that he was 5 feet 2 inches, (laughs) this is odd. That's in French feet. (laughs) Translate that into English feet, and it's 5 feet 7 inches tall. And at that time, he was a little taller than the average Frenchman. And so he was actually taller than other people during his day. You could go on and on with the misconceptions. You know, salt water boils faster. Swimming after you eat is dangerous. If you have wet hair for too long, you'll get a cold. Gum takes seven years to digest. The earth is flat. And probably the biggest misconception of all time is that a Twinkie will last for eternity. All these and so many more misconceptions we just believe because we've heard them over and over and over, and so we have assumed that they are true. You know, when it comes to the devil, people also have a lot of misconceptions. There's quite a few of them. For example, the first misconception is that the devil is not actually real, that he is a fictional character who is used in our silly stories or in our silly jokes, or that he's just a symbol of evil, that he's just, you know, you're going through something in your life and you find yourself saying, well, you know, I'm just battling my demons. Misconception, number one, is that the devil isn't real. There's another misconception, and that's people say, well, if the devil is real, then he's in hell waiting for people to come there so he can torment them. Would it shock you to know that the devil or Satan is not currently in hell and that he has never been there? The reality is the devil, Satan, doesn't go to hell until the end of the tribulation period when Jesus returns. And when he gets there, and by the way, he will get there, he's not going to be the chief tormentor. He's going to be the chief target. Revelation chapter 20 says this, the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So as you read through your Bible and you study the Bible, you discover some different aspects of the devil. For example, the devil or or, or Satan is a created being. He's a fallen angel, if you will. And he's an angel, a fallen angel, who has a certain amount of access to both heaven and earth. We see that in Job chapter 1 where it says, One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that is going on. So Satan has some kind of access, not only to earth, but also to heaven. But that will change in the future. And as the Apostle John shows us, he's going to tell us what is in store for the devil in the last of the last days. But the Apostle John is also going to give us much greater insight into the nature and to the character of the devil who happens to be our arch enemy. You see, it's important for you and I to understand the nature, the character of the the devil, because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said, we don't want to unwittingly give Satan an opening for yet more mischief. And then Paul says, no, 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 we, Paul says, we're not oblivious to his sly ways. Another translation says, we are not ignorant of his schemes, or we know what he is trying to do. Let me ask you, do you want the devil taking advantage of you? No, of course you don't. Do you want him to outwit you? No, of course you don't. Do you want to be be deceived by him and give him an opening in your life? Of course you don't. So as we step into Revelation chapter 12, that's where we're going to be today. So you can go in your physical Bibles, Revelation chapter 12, but you can also go on your phone to the YouVersion Bible app and follow along with us there. As we step into this, we're going to see what's in store in the future for the devil. But we also see in this chapter and learn about his many characteristics and his traits. And we want to know these because we, as Paul said, don't want to be oblivious to his sly ways because we don't want to be deceived. So let's pick up where we left off last week. John sees something that is shocking. That he's gonna, that's going to come in the future. Let's pick it up. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. It says, there was what? There was war where? War in? There's war in heaven. I don't know about you, but when I think about heaven, I just don't picture it being a war zone. Do you? No, I, I don't picture it being a war zone. I picture heaven being a worship zone where there's praise and there's angels and there's singing and there's music and there's joy and there's glory. But John sees something, and in the future he says, there's going to be a war in heaven. Now last week, in the earlier verses of Revelation chapter 12, we saw a past battle that had happened in in heaven and how Satan and some of his his angels, that they had fallen. They had tried to eliminate, it tells us, this male child who would become the the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We happen to know that that is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. That's in verse 4. But Satan failed in his his efforts to eliminate this child, and Jesus ultimately was resurrected, and he ascended to the throne in heaven. You see that in verse 5. And then verse 6, actually fast forward from the time of Jesus, all the way to the last of the last days. And it talks to us about the final three-and-a-half-year period of the tribulation right before Jesus returns. And then we get here to verse 7. We're talking about that final three-and-a-half-year period of time, and then we learn that there's a war in heaven. That Satan, even after losing a past battle... He, in the future, is still going to try to stage a coup, a takeover of heaven. Now, why would he try to do that? You could describe it a lot of different ways, but just to use simple language, man, Satan's persistent, and he doesn't give up with his goals and his plans. He's persistent. In fact, he knows, even though he's fighting a losing battle, in his his persistence, he's going to attempt to bring down as many people as possible. It's kind of like when you were kids and you were playing games around the pool. pool, games that your parents frowned upon but you kind of played anyway. One of those games was push somebody into the pool and you don't go into the pool. Whoever played that game, come on, let's be real, right? And your parents didn't want you playing this game. But as you played and you try to push each other in, the goal was not to be pushed in, but to push in. But inevitably, eventually, what happened, you would probably find yourself on the losing end of that push in. And as you're falling back and you feel your momentum going back and you know you're going down, what's the one unspoken rule that you must do as you're falling down? You grab them and you pull them down with you, right? So that's Satan. He knows he's going down. And he says, I'm going to take as many people with me as I can. Satan's persistent in this. And he's not going to give up. He doesn't give up. You see this in Luke chapter 4 where it says the devil had finished tempting Jesus and he left him until the next opportunity came. Did you just catch it? It tells us he's not giving up. He's persistent. And he's going to consistently look for an opportunity to come after us and to attack us. First Peter chapter 5 tells us our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So just like, an, like a lion, the devil is studying you and I. He's watching us. He's stalking us. He's looking for the opportunity to attack us, and he doesn't give up on it. In fact, Jesus told Peter that he said, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He doesn't give up. He's persistent. He studies us. He attacks us based on his understanding and knowing who we are. And so John, he sees this war in heaven that's happening during the tribulation period, where Satan makes a final attempt to take over heaven. The next verse, there's a war in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, or the devil, and his angels. Did you notice who, who the devil is not fighting against? He's not fighting in this passage against God. Now, here's why I think it's important for you and I to kind of make note of that and grab a hold of that. Man, don't buy into the lie that Satan is the opposite of God. Don't buy into that. This fallen angel is not the evil opposite of a righteous God. This isn't some cosmic battle between God and the devil, and we got money on it in Vegas as to who might win. They're not equals. This isn't, oh man, we're not sure, and maybe the devil is going to win, and maybe God's going to win. Listen, the fight isn't even close. In fact, God doesn't need to fight. God just wins. So this battle is actually between angels it's between angels that god has created it's between the angel michael and and, and angels who fight with michael against the dragon the devil and his angels and by the way this isn't the first time michael and the devil has fought in jude chapter 1 it says the archangel michael contended with the devil or fought with the devil and disputed about the body of moses Some of you might be wondering, well, Michael, Michael keeps coming up. Who's this archangel Michael? Well, whenever he appears in Scripture, we see him as the protector or the defender of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. In Daniel chapter 12, we're told Michael is the chief of the angels. He's the protector of your people. He's talking to Daniel. And who's Daniel's people? It's the Jewish people. Now, scholars don't know for sure. What brings about this war in heaven? Uh, One idea that has been suggested just sounded fascinating to me. I don't don't know if I buy it, but it it was fascinating. Uh, Some scholars suggest that what brings this war about in heaven is the rapture of the church up to heaven. And they quote uh, Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about how how, uh, the devil is the prince of the power of the air. And so the idea here is that as we are raptured, as the church is raptured up to heaven, as we're passing up to heaven, that we're going through, you know, the heavenly realms and, and, and uh, you know, the devil and his angels are trying to prevent us and stop us. And so there's a war over us trying to get up there. And I just don't picture me trying to claw my way up. You know, God said I'm heading up there. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I throw that out there because that is out there. Regardless, here's what we do know about this. We do know there is a war. There's a war in heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, he was now thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. So now we're going to get some characteristics of of this fallen angel, the devil. First of all, he is called here the great dragon. Now, now, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible where, where Satan, the devil, is called the dragon, and he's called that thirteen times in Revelation, two just in this chapter alone. Why is it in Revelation that is he called the dragon? Because it's giving us a picture, some symbols, if you symbolism you if you will, of his nature, of his character in the last of the last days. That he is this fierce tyrant, this something that is, that is evil, if you will. In, in those days, a dragon and the image that that portrays. But verse 9 also says he's something else. Notice, it says he's the ancient serpent. What is that a reference to? Well, that takes you back to Genesis chapter 3, right, if you know the story, where the serpent came to deceive Adam and Eve. And so we're learning here, it's reminding us who is this? This person, he, this devil, this fallen angel, this ancient serpent, he's cunning, right? He's crafty, he's subtle, and he's treacherous. Verse nine also refers to him as the, the name that, that's most common to us that we know of this fallen angel. And that's he's referred to as the devil. The devil. Now, in this verse, it says he's the devil. The Greek word for devil is diabolos. Uh, In the Spanish language, they just transliterate it, the word, and and they translate it to Diablo. But but Diabolos, what does the word devil mean? It literally means slanderer. In other words, the the devil is the chief gossiper. I want you to think about that. He's the chief gossiper, all gossip. Where does it originate from? It originates from the devil. He's, He's the chief instigator, if you will. He's the chief defamer. Here in verse 9, Revelation chapter 12, he's also called Satan. Satan is the Greek word satanus, which means enemy or adversary. So let's put it all together. And in this verse 9, we get this composite image or picture of who this fallen angel is. He's this fierce tyrant who's yet very subtle and very crafty. And he slanders us and he defames us. He's our enemy. He's our adversary. Jesus said in John ten ten about him that his goal, his desire is to kill you, to destroy you, to harm you, to steal from you. Verse 9 goes on and tells us something else about him. It tells us also that he deceives the whole world. The devil will use any and all means and tactics he can to deceive you and to deceive me. And when you look out across the landscape of the world and you find yourself, if you watch the news or hear, read stories, you find yourself thinking, how could people do that? How could people be that evil? How could people think that what is, what is wrong that they consider right? As you look across violence and, and, and everything that you see in the world that is wrong, where does that come from? It comes from the devil deceiving us. Bringing about a deception upon the earth, the devil deceives. John 10:10, 10, 10, He wants to kill, steal and destroy. What does Jesus say? He said, "I want to come and give you life." So God has life for us, but the devil wants to deceive us and tells us about a false life that's all about destruction. He deceives. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 goes on and says, "I talking about John, heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been now thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. So we learn something else about this devil, this Satan, this enemy of ours, that he is the great accuser. And in his persistence, he stands before God day and night, day and night, day and night, slamming you. Accusing you, tearing you down, trying to show God everything that's wrong with you and with me. He's the great accuser. Now, I know this about you. You have suffered and or you are currently suffering from some of those accusations. And some of those accusations come from in three places. They come from our own minds. They come from other people. And they come from the devil himself and his angels. And, and you find yourself thinking and feeling and experiencing voices that say to you, who do you think you are? You think you're a Christian? Look at what you do. Look at what you think. Look at how you act. Look at what you just thought about that person. How could you call yourself a Christian? You pray to God. You think God's going to pay attention to you? You think God's going to listen to you? Why would he care about you? He doesn't care about you. You're nobody. You're nothing. You see, he accuses and accuses and accuses. You've heard those before, and many others. And they're wounding, and they hurt us. He's the great accuser. So John sees something, verse 10. This accuser has now been thrown down to the earth. Well, what's the response of this accuser who's had access to heaven now being thrown down to earth? Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens, rejoice. The occupants of heaven can finally rejoice because Satan has finally been kicked out. He's been cast down to earth. I don't know about you, but uh, I imagine some of you at some point in your life, you've had somebody who has wreaked havoc in your life. And they've made your life miserable. And if you've had that type of person in your life, man, when they finally are no longer a part of your life, what do you do immediately? You have a party and you rejoice because they're gone, right? Finally, they're out of my life. And that's what's happening here in heaven. They're rejoicing because finally, the devil, the accuser, is banished from heaven. And so there's a party in heaven. Verse 12, you who live in the heavens rejoice, but terror, some translations say woe, woe or terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has, been, has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. Verse 12 is telling us something that changes the dynamic of human history. As part of God's judgment, we see his terror the woes that come upon the earth that we've kind of been talking about a little bit. There's rejoicing in heaven because Satan has been cast out. But now, this created heavenly being is now confined to earth. And as a result of that, there's now going to be terror on earth like we've never seen before. Satan lost the war. God kicks him, so God kicks him out of heaven. And he sends him down and confines him to earth. I want you to think about this. Up to this point in history, Satan's dominion has been the earth, but he's also had access to heaven, and so he hasn't felt totally defeated. And so he has been persistent in his efforts. He could go roam back and forth between heaven and earth, as Job chapter 1 said that we read earlier. And that allowed Satan to to remain self-deceived about his chances of a possible future victory over God. You see, this is really the key to understanding Revelation and specifically the last three and a half years of the tribulation right before Jesus returns. In fact, the last three and a half years of the, of the tribulation is actually called the Great Tribulation. Why is it called the Great Tribulation? Because, in fact, it's kind of like this du- uh, double whammy, if you will, right? It's, you have the wrath of God that is taking place. During the tribulation period, now Satan's now cast down to earth, confined to earth, and he brings his great anger, his great wrath. And so you have the, you have the wrath of God, but now the a- devil is angry and he's bringing his, all of his wrath. And so it's a double wrath. The battle in heaven that we cannot see is now becomes the battle on earth. And we'll see that battle. Verse 12 tells us there's very little time at this point. There's only three and a half years remaining until Jesus returns. I, I, I've talked about this three and a half years uh, to you multiple times. I just keep throwing it out there because you see different terms, and it's just good to be reminded of it. There's different ways Scripture describes the three and a half years. Here in Revelation chapter 12, it's described a couple different ways. In verse 6, it talks about where the woman fled into the wilderness, where God and the woman represented of Israel. We talked about it last week where God prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. That's in the Jewish calendar, three and a half years. Verse 14, she was cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Same language used in Daniel. It's referring to three and a half years. And and in case we miss it, in Revelation chapter 13, it speaks of a future coming world leader who we will know as the the Antichrist. We're going to talk about him in the coming weeks. And in verse 5, it says of him that he's given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. All of those terms, the same exact thing, 42 months, 1,260 days, times time and half a time. They all mean the same thing, three and a half years. And as a result, and so the devil has been kicked out of heaven. And as a result, verse 12, he's come down in great wrath or great fury or great anger. Why? He's now confined to the earth, something he's never experienced. One scholar, John Phillips, in his commentary writes this, Satan is now like a caged animal or a caged lion, enraged beyond words by the limitations now placed upon his freedom. He picks himself up from the dust of the earth. He shakes his fist at the sky and glares around, choking with fury for ways to vent his hatred and spite upon mankind and that's what's coming now let me just pause for a moment and ask a question you might be thinking why did God take so long to do this why did God wait so long or does God wait so long and continue to allow Satan access to heaven well it's simple it's the grace of God upon the world It's the grace of God upon the world because God knows the moment he kicks Satan out of heaven permanently, what is Satan's response going to be? He's going to unleash his wrath upon the earth. He'll have no more access to heaven and he's going to vent all his anger on the people of the earth. And he's going to use, the Bible tells us, a very specific person to use it, to, to do it. Again, we're going to talk about it in the coming weeks. Daniel chapter 9 talks all about this person, the Antichrist. And this Antichrist, this world leader, will make a peace treaty, a pact with the people of Israel. And, and that will allow them to rebuild their temple and to have sacrifices. But, but three and a half years into that, that pact, that treaty... The Antichrist, the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 9, it's called the abomination that causes desolation. He will walk into the temple, the Jewish temple, and he will declare that he himself is God and everybody must worship him or they will be killed. Now, why does he do that? Why does this world leader, this Antichrist, do that at that point, three and a half years into the tribulation? Well, when did this war happen? Three and a half years into the tribulation, Satan and his angels are cast down to the earth, my opinion. Now confined to the earth, he goes to the person he's been working behind the scenes with and maybe even literally possesses this world ruler, this this antichrist. And in his fury and in his fit of rage, he goes into the temple like a spoiled child declaring, no, 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 I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, worship me, worship me. And at that point, As bad as the first half of the tribulation was, from this point forward, it gets worse and worse and worse beyond our imagination as he does everything he can to kill and to steal and to destroy. And he'll target everybody on the earth, but he's specifically going to go after God's people, the Jewish people. And the passage goes on in Revelation and says that God is going to protect some of them. And somehow, some way, they're going to get out of, of, of Jerusalem commentators and scholars disagree about how they get out and and where they go but what we do know is that God even though Satan will try to kill God's people the Jewish people we do know that God will protect them even miraculously because God's not finished with the Jewish people as he wants to see them come to receive Jesus as their Messiah as you and I have already done Now, as we get ready to close, I want to go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. As bad as Satan is, and we've learned about that this morning, Satan is conquerable. Verse 11, it says this, And they defeated or overcame him, Satan, the dragon. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. So I just got to ask you, what do you do when you're tempted? What do you do when the pressures come your way, when the trials, the tribulations come your way? What do you do when you're accused, when you're hassled, when you feel the pressure? And maybe it's external or maybe it's just internal. You're your hearing, sensing, feeling these, these thoughts and these feelings and these opinions, and it's just the attacks come your way. What do you do? Do you give up? Do you give in? I want you to hear me very clearly. You can overcome. You can overcome the devil. How? What did the verse say? In your own strength? No. But by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ. His shed blood on the cross for us so that we can be saved, so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be considered righteous before God, not in our own efforts, but by the blood of the Lamb. Right now, that, this war hasn't happened yet. So right now, Satan is in heaven, accusing you and I day and night. That's what he's doing. But 1 John chapter 2 tells us we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So you're being accused right now. But just know that you have an advocate, Jesus. And he pleads your case before the Father. And the Father says, what's your case? And Jesus says it's not their righteousness, it's not their holiness, it's not their goodness. It's not what we've done, it's not what we've earned, we can't earn it. Jesus said, they're good, my blood covers them. They're good, covered by the blood of the Lamb. They're good, I covered them. They're good, they're righteous now. They're clean, their sins are forgiven, they're white as snow. All these different images of the scriptures. We have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So you know what that means? That's good news for you and I. You want to tell you why? Let me tell you why. The apostle Paul said it this way. Because we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says, so we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Another translation says, overwhelming victory is ours through Jesus who loves us. We're conquerors. We're victorious. So no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult it is, you're a conqueror. You have victory. It may not feel like it right now in the moment. It may not feel like it in the pain and in the agony and the emotional, perhaps, and even mental torture that you're experiencing. But if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then no matter what you're going through, the reality is, according to Scripture, it describes what we're going through, believe it or not, as light and momentary. In light of heaven, no matter what we're going through, we have overwhelming victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I close with Paul's words to the Corinthian church where he said to us and to them, so be on your guard. Stand firm in your faith. Be courageous and be strong. Church, don't waver. Don't waver. God is with you. God is for you. God is on your side. You are a conqueror. You are victorious. How? In Jesus Christ our Lord. So be strong. Be courageous. Because we know who ultimately wins the battle. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Let's pray.